Welcome to Funding the Dream, a Game Whisperer podcast for Kickstarters. I'm Richard Bliss, the Game Whisperer, and your host. And today I'm joined by Patrick Nickel, who had just, has literally minutes ago, successfully funded his uh, project on Kickstarter called Rise. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Richard. Well, kind of exciting. Uh, we just wrapped up. How, how long ago was it been? It was uh, just a, about an hour ago? Is that what it was? Less than, less than an hour ago, about half an hour ago, we wrapped up our Kickstarter campaign for Rise. And uh, kind of an exciting uh, way to end the year, right? It's New Year's Eve. This is when we're re recording this uh, show. And so right uh, down to the wire at the end of the year, and you successfully funded. At what level did you fund? What percentage did you fund? Actually, we funded $40 short of your uh, prediction. <laughs> I was going to share that with you. Uh, back when we had talked 30 days ago in the middle of our campaign, uh, you had predicted that we would fund at 117%. We funded at 116%, and we're only $40 shy from that going to 117 Oh, dang, dang. You know, I need to go on Prices Right, don't I? You, you do. You need to go buy a lottery ticket. It's creepy how accurate you are. Well, we did, uh, we did pretty good with that one. You're right. Uh, you and I had a conversation about 30 days ago. So on, in this show, in the next 20 minutes, we're going to talk about kind of uh, some of the things you learned and some of the things you did different in your campaign because halfway through your campaign, you had a 60-day campaign, and halfway through it, uh, you uh, got hold of me. Uh, we had a discussion, and we kind of talked about kind of refocusing, resetting, and restarting. So why don't you discuss a little bit about uh, kind of that experience, how you started and then how you changed halfway through? Because I think that's going to be important, as you said early before we started uh, recording, that listeners are going to probably want to hear about how maybe if you uh, made some missteps, how you can recover from those uh, while in the middle of your campaign. Well, sure. And, you know, we didn't know how the campaign was going to go. We were an unproven company with no games for people to look back on for any type of, of metric of quality or success. So we felt that even though Kickstarter said, you know, 30 days was the best amount of time, that 60 would be better for us on our first, our first run. And so 30 days into the project, you know, for as much planning and, and we sure did a lot and as much, you know, strategic marketing and just everything that we sat down and looked forward to for the next 60 days, once we were in the midst of the campaign, it became abundantly clear that we hadn't done everything that we possibly could have. I mean, it was just staggering. It's like, gosh, I can't believe that we didn't think about this. And I can't believe we didn't think about that. And there was just so many mistakes um, that had happened, you know, in that first 30 days. And it, it's not like we just decided one day to launch a Kickstarter project. You know, we had met for weeks prior to this, nearly every day, talked about it, shot video, you know, did marketing plans, everything. And then once we were in the midst of it, we were sort of overwhelmed. It's like that five-foot wave you see coming at you and you think you can take it on. And then right there when you're at the foot of it, it just tosses you. One of my favorite, so, one of my favorite people from history is uh, Rommel, and uh, he's uh, – attributed to saying that the best laid plans, all your plans are thrown out the window on contact with the enemy. Exactly. And, and that's what, what we were up against. And so at that 30-day mark, it became abundantly clear that if some dramatic shifting didn't happen, that we were not going to be successful in the following 30 because our steam had run out. We had plateaued at, at 5K in funding of a $15,000 goal. 
And we knew that we had a lot of ground to make up. So that's when, you know, I had reached out to several people, yourself included, and had gotten a lot of great advice on what we could possibly do. And we also had, you know, 30 days of learning our lesson, the hard way of getting our head knocked in a little bit. So what were some of the lessons you learned? What did you do wrong those first 30 days? Well, the first 30 days, we realized that we didn't really have a convention to show our product at. We'd really, you know, and, and that was a bonehead move. I had seen the success that Carnival had had coming off of Gen Con and the WBC. And that was one of the things that I was actually trying to plan, you know, and that was a, a roll of the dice. We decided Kickstarter is super hot right now. So let's start November 1 and see if we can get in on it, you know, because we felt that the, there was a potential for the Kickstarter bubble to burst with there, it being so flooded with board game projects. So it was just, you know, trying to figure out, you know, hey. And then November 1st, you had no how idea. Can we, how can we turn this around? And Right. On, yeah. no, on November 1st, uh, I heard a lot of people talking about the bubble bursting. Uh, I obviously didn't agree with that. And here in November – we did uh, 300000 December 500000 so you know, three-quarters of a million dollars from the moment you launched your Kickstarter campaign. It certainly hadn't burst yeah. yet. No, it was a, I think it was a little bit and so much easier to say this in hindsight. It was a little bit of a chicken little syndrome. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. You know, everybody thought that surely this was going to come to an end. And that was really, really scary for us as a first-time company. And we had already clicked that, that button of start your campaign. So there was no looking back at that point. Right, and so uh, you uh, you hadn't been to a con. What other mistakes do you think that you made in those first thirty days? You know, I I had felt that you know we were with our artistic direction, we were appealing to a certain demographic, and that you know I love the the box cover for our game, but I felt like we needed to appeal to a, a little more hardcore of a, of a gamer audience that. You know, and that was great because that meant our first 30 days we had, you know, really friendly art and it was very family friendly and very, very family oriented. And then our second 30 days, you know, we went with a different thumbnail shot for the game. And while I can't, you know, say that specifically had an impact, we certainly got a lot of positive, positive response for it. So I think we had a lot of mistakes on our Kickstarter page. Um, we had you know, said that we were going to have stretch goals and we were trying to be as transparent as we possibly could, which we felt was was great for building that trust level. But it also kind of put a lot of just confusing information that, that backers didn't need to see, that they weren't coming there for that. So it was too much information, I feel, for them to have filtered through and after talking to people such as yourself and others that we needed to stick to the meat and potatoes of the project. And so our Kickstarter page got a overhaul. We clarified some things. We put up some new pictures. We redid the tile art and put that up. Um, we had considered reshooting the video, but when it came down to it, we simply didn't have enough time um, with the holidays approaching and juggling work schedules to redo the video. But, you know, we definitely gave our Kickstarter page a new direction, and that 
clearly, you know, was the trick or one of the one of the many we implored because we also had a chance, you know, last minute. I can't believe my wife signed off on letting me drive the Dallas, Texas to go to BGG Con. Right. That was a big that was a big deal because I read on your uh, on Board Game Geek on your uh, design diary uh, or your blog or somewhere that uh, you guys kind of made that decision at the last minute that, hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to make this investment and go to that show, that that conference. Yeah, it was a big it was a big push. I had given my ticket away early in the year to uh, Tori Neiman, the creator of Alien Frontiers, is a good friend of mine, and I wasn't going to be able to go because I was working retail at the time. Um, that changed, and I wasn't working retail anymore. And he ended up not being able to go. So thankfully, I was able to get my ticket back. Um, my business partner and the designer of Rise, Michael Coe, um, he had gotten a ticket literally at the cutoff. And then it was a matter of him scheduling, getting the work time off, which was a huge thing, and then us coming up with a financial plan that made it possible for two people to lose out on income and then spend on top of that in order to make the convention. It was a small miracle. It really was. And I truly feel that had we not done that, we would not have been successful. So uh, what was the impact at the show? You went to uh, Board Game Geek Con. Uh, in Texas, and what was the impact of the show? What did you learn there that you thought didn't you? You'd played tested this. You'd actually showed this off. So, what was there? Was there something new at the show that you discovered that you didn't know? We did. We had a huge epiphany at the show on our drive out there because it's a fifteen-hour drive. Michael and I had a lot of time to talk, and we were actually. Uh, listening to Funding the Dream podcast. It was your episode uh, where you had uh, Chris and Sherilyn from Dice Hate Me on, and we had listened to your podcast, and then we began a very long discussion. And one of the issues that we had had with Rise was that it didn't have a theme. And we were catching a lot of a lot of flack on that from a good amount of people of it needs a theme, it needs a theme. And we, you know, really didn't feel that it did, or I should say Michael Coe, my partner, didn't feel that it did. I was sort of in my grabbing at straws phase of, oh my gosh, I'm I I'm almost panicking because we're, you know, halfway done and only thirty-three percent funded. Um, so I was like, well, maybe we should put a theme on it. And when we got, we weren't, we weren't decided on that. That decision didn't get made in the car. We pretty much were saying, let's see where we stand after the convention. So when we were at the convention, I believe it became abundantly clear around day two. We discovered the magic of Rise and that sort of lightning in a bottle that I feel that we captured is that when people sat down to play the game, whatever theme they liked, they seem to mentally project on the game because we played it with over a hundred people, you know, over a five day period. So when we sat down to play it with the mom, she thought, oh, this will be a great, great game to teach my kids strategy. We sat down, you know, with an elderly gentleman and he said, oh, this is a great little puzzle game. You know, we sat down with a real, you know, staunch war gamer and he's like, oh, this is a great tactical war game. And then, you know, Dice Hate Me loves Cthulhu. He's like, I could totally see this as cultists building portals for Cthulhu to enter the world. And we just had this light bulb go off, you know, ding, this game without a theme becomes whatever that person playing it wants it to be. And that was our answer right there. And you took some of that insight later on at the end of your campaign uh, to kind of have some fun with that, uh, with your with your 
brand allowing you kind of did not a contest but kind of reached out to your backers to come up with actual themes and stickers uh, how did that work out we did we had actually had a really close friend uh that we play games with here in the phoenix area uh chris owen a really good friend of mine and a fantastic gamer had mentioned it was the first person to mention the idea of the stickers and then uh, you had mentioned something about it and so you know a couple people you know one person says it you know you, you take it in two people say it and you really start to think about it so michael and i wanted to have a little bit of fun we wanted to engage our backers because we felt that that was another secret to success that we hadn't done yet and said, hey, for people that want to project their theme onto Rise, we're going to do a, a survey and let you vote on your top factions. And the top six will make it into, into the game as an optional add-on of a faction sticker pack. And if we hit you know, 20K in funding, which we, we were short of, that we would include the second top six so the top 12 um the second six would be free to everyone um but we just ended up doing the the top six and people really took off on it i got over a hundred you know responses on our survey i think 125 people officially weighed in which was you know pretty good that was at that point you know half our backers now that's and that is that's kind of a cool way of uh, just engaging them helping them be part of the design process which we continue to say with the whole Kickstarter thing, there has to be some emotional tie. These people are not just doing this because, uh, oh, by the way, you're selling a game and, and here I'll do a pre-order. They're looking for a way to emotionally tie themselves to your project and your success. And so that was a, that was a really a nice, fun way and a fairly easy way for them to be able to, to contribute and participate. Yeah, we found that any time we invited people to be a part of the game, which is always a, a slippery slope, you know, we have to maintain a certain amount of control, you know, or else the game will get out of hand. But finding creative ways for people to, to get in on it, I think, is a huge part of successful Kickstarter campaigns. Like we, you know, shortly after the sticker um, project, we had launched a map maker project where people could take 12 tiles and create any starting map they wanted to for the game as long as it was equal to both players. We got a ridiculous amount of submissions for that. I, and there wasn't some. a contest. There wasn't right. anything extra that was going to be included. This was just something for them to have fun with. And I think we got over 80 submissions Yeah, of I saw maps. some of them. They were very cool. Uh, very cool different looks. And it was just kind of a – yeah, you're right. It was just kind of a fun way to, uh, to, to introduce that. Now, yeah, by the way, that's going to be available on our website for download at crashgamesaz.com. And, and, and let's just uh, – I didn't introduce you that way at the beginning of the podcast, and, and that is you used Rise to launch uh, basically the start of Crash Games, right? Yeah. The, the launch of Crash Games was almost synchronized perfectly with Rise. You know, Crash Games existed just about a month before Rise came out. And so a lot of people don't understand, you know, we were so busy with Rise, but we were also forming a brand new game company on top of that you know that had a, a tremendous amount of work that went along with it and so um you know i i truly believe in my heart that anything worth doing in this life isn't easy but man we sure bit off a lot for the uh, fall of 2011 you did you had a lot going and now you you came to, what are some of the in the middle of your campaign kickstarter made some adjustments to the type of data that they provide to uh project owners Right. They, yeah, it was 
yeah, the the metrics that the analytics that they decided to to provide all the project owners with that was huge. And were there any surprises for you as you started to see some of these analytics? Now you're seeing behavior patterns of your backers. Was there something that kind of jumped out at you or surprised you? There was, and it was you know it was great to have them, but it was also frustrating that we didn't have them from the beginning. But it was great so that we could look at it and see, okay, here's where we've been putting a lot of effort. And so we saw, okay, you know, I tweet like a fiend. I love Twitter. I'm on Twitter all day long. And, you know, I tried not to spam people, but probably about three times a day, I would mention something about Rise and include the link. So I thought that a good portion of our backers would come directly from Twitter, when at the end of our campaign, we only got nine backers. Nine out of in, the, 400, that the sense 410. Were, yeah, out of 410. So that let me know, hey, in the future, I could probably spare everybody the spam and not have to talk about the project so much because at the end of the day, it really didn't translate into a large portion of our numbers. It was fascinating stuff that, you know, my wife, she's a math fiend. We're going to sit down and we're going to pour over the analytics and look at them. But, you know, our biggest amount of backers, you know, came from people directly typing it in to the Kickstarter bar, search bar, which let me know they had heard about it or seen us at the convention or they knew about the project before they clicked on Kickstarter because they were typing it right in. Uh, interesting. So that, uh, that, that's it's, – it's hard to say whether or not your Twitter – your tweeting had an impact on there because it's possible people were seeing it, remembering it, reinforcing it, and then when it became time, they're like, oh, I can't find the tweet that he sent me, but I'll go out to the Kickstarter page. Yeah, the the analytics are a double-edged sword. They do provide you with information, but it, much like you just described, the situation could come in a roundabout way just like that. So while the information is good, I don't know that we can necessarily take it completely to heart because – you know, we don't know at the end of the day what was the driving force behind them visiting. But also Kickstarter, you know, we had kind of said to them, hey, you know, you've not put our project up anywhere. You know, I'm just curious what that process is like. And we got sort of a canned response. But I noticed after that we were in regular rotation on their main games page, which is why I feel another thing that was hugely detrimental to our success. We never made the front page. Unfortunately, that was kind of what we were shooting for, but they put us in regular rotation on the games page, which I think helped out a lot. We got a lot of exposure that way. Yeah, I know that they're still adjusting that. We've had uh, Chris James on uh, from Stratus Games talking about that a little bit, and they've Kickstarter has modified their new and noteworthy, which now just simply says staff picks. And I had an opportunity of sitting down with Cindy Al from Kickstarter to kind of talk about some of those things. And they're making changes and adjustments. And the board game market for them over at uh, Kickstarter is quite small. They get about $2 million a week in f pledges. And so, if Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> that kind of puts it in perspective that we're actually a very small portion of their uh, – they have thousands and thousands of projects going on simultaneously – and millions of dollars pouring in on a weekly basis. And so your $17,000, which is impressive for you, to them, it's really hard. It is to, a flash in the pan. Yeah, it's really yeah. hard for them to, even, to take notice, although they do a very good job. Cindy does a great job of paying attention to the market, to the industry. She's out on Board Game Geek. 
Uh, it was interesting that Board Game Geek is one of the top ten referring sites for Kickstarter overall. Not not for board games, but overall, that Board Game Geek actually. Well, and that shows, you know, we may be small, but we are a strong community, us board gamers. Yeah, very focused, very focused on that. Well, we've only got about a minute or two left uh, here in the in the in the show. So Rise is now out. Uh, it's gonna. You've got your 410 backers. How many copies of Rise? Um, will, the seventeen thousand dollars to help people understand kind of some of the metrics of the of the cost of of doing this. How many copies of Rise will that produce for you? It's going to produce about fifteen hundred copies to two thousand. That's something we're working with the manufacturing on right now. Um, a lot of people don't realize that for us offering free shipping, we're going to take a three to five thousand dollar hit to the pocketbook just once these games are stateside to send them out to everyone. So a lot of people think, oh, well, this is way more money than they needed. No, we're taking about a $5,000 hit just to send everyone the game for free. So we did 15000 because that was the number that it would take, you know, minus Kickstarter's portion to actually make the game and send it out and not have to go into debt, you know, through the bank. Right, The kick- and people who don't understand who don't know or don't understand Kickstarter takes about 5% and then the folks over at Amazon take about 5% leaving you with uh, 10% less. So in your case, $1,700 just right off the top there with 400 backers, you know, you're sending out uh, several hundred packages running you about 10 to $12 of shipping per package. So there's another uh, three to $5,000. So suddenly that, that, that money you've got, starts to disappear fast and you haven't even that's not that doesn't even count producing the game right no yeah the the game production alone is about at the you know 10k mark so we included some extras in there you know and thankfully we'll be able to pay for those extras you know with the little extra portion of funding that we got um we just want to make sure too though before we wrap up here that we let everyone know crash games is going to be at volcon which is a, a board game strategy board game conference here in phoenix coming up in february we'll be at origins we'll be at gen con and we will be at BGG Con all this this continued year. So once we have uh, the shopping cart page on our website up and running, people can pre-order the game on CrashGamesAZ.com, or you can always find us at one of those four conventions, and we'll have it on hand. Probably we're shooting to have it at Origins. It's going to come down to the wire because uh, everything you know in China is going to come to a screeching halt in about three weeks, and Kickstarter, or rather, yeah, Kickstarter holds on to that money for about two weeks, so we can't actually do anything until there's a week to go before Chinese New Year. Right. Something that, uh, <laughs> that national holidays in China are starting to have an impact on our ability to uh, get our stuff done. How interesting is that, right? Yeah, that could be a whole show right there. <laughs> well, it could. Patrick, thank you very much for taking the time to kind of talk about your success. It's very exciting to see uh, where something was struggling. You guys made some adjustments and then had uh, that success carry through. You did a great job of keeping people aware of the of the project. And I got to believe that right there at the end, right, you uh, there's still there was always the doubts, right? It, even. You, yeah, until until we successfully funded, I was nervous. And until that thing said you successfully funded, until I got that email from Kickstarter, you know, we were we were sort of like, okay, you know, then we can relax. It's been an extremely rewarding process. I can't thank our backers enough. We thanked each and every one of them personally uh, via email, and we meant it. 
without them, we're nothing. And it's such a great feeling to have that sense of community and to be successful on this project. Well, great, Patrick. Thank you very much for, uh, for being here. You've been listening. Thanks for having me, Richard. Oh, not a problem. You've been listening to Funding the Dream, a Game Whisperer podcast for Kickstarters. I'm Richard Bliss, your host, and we've had Patrick Nickel from Crash Games. And I just want to say, take care. Happy New Year.